Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, our subject is science, which has without doubt been a boon to human happiness over the past several thousand years. But if you think there might be something a little screwy about science lately, well, you're not alone. My guest today is Dr. John Stadden. John is James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Professor of Biology Emeritus at Duke University. He obtained his Bachelor's of Science at University College London and his Ph.D. in Experimental Psychology at Harvard University, where he also did research at the MIT Systems Lab. He is the author of more than 200 research papers and nine books, including Scientific Method, How Science Works, Fails to Work, or Pretends to Work. He was profiled in the Wall Street Journal in January 2021 as commentator on the current problems of science, and he's here today to talk about his new book, Science in an Age of Unreason. So, John, welcome to the show. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Good to meet you. What prompted you to write a book about science? What's wrong with science today in general? Well, it's a good question. The book accumulated over the years, of course. I've always been interested in scientific method, and I've always been, ever since I was an undergraduate, actually, rather suspicious of what became in subsequent decades. The standard method, the standard method for social science and much of biomedical science. So as these things accumulated, I saw more and more problems and some connections between them and so on. And eventually I put it all together into, if you like, I'll give you a quickie summary. The book is in five parts. The first part, it deals with science as a source of values. A lot of secular humanists think that science provides value and contrast they contrast in their own minds those values are the values provided by religion but of course there's a problem that uh, neither religious values nor secular humanist values can be derived from science they're on a par there and not fair for the secular types pretend to be above the floor our next part was on evolution there's a lot of discussion about evolution i think some misunderstandings of it 
the secularists tried to use evolution as a source of values. I point out there's some problems with that. The next section was on professional issues. There, most people outside the academy or research labs don't know how science really works, how people get promoted, how dependent they are on research grants, how research grants are dependent on publications, the problems with publications and the evaluation of scientific progress by the number of publications. It's a very bad, bad idea. So I discuss all of those, all of those situations. And then there are a couple of chapters on climate change. I, I'm not a climate scientist. I've been reminded of that. I have a colleague who's a physicist and an engineer and was very skeptical of the whole thing and persuaded me to work with him to try and understand what was going on. We both, both felt that any scientific field, no matter how arcane, should be explainable to someone with a reasonable scientific education. So that's why we became involved to look at climate change. And but my model, I must say, for all this is the physicist Richard Feynman, wonderful guy, brilliant lecturer. And one of his books is called QED, which doesn't stand for what you would normally think, it stands for quantum electrodynamics, not you would think a simple subject. And yet he does a brilliant job of explaining it. So my thought was one ought to be able to do the same thing with climate change, one of the causes of climate change, how accurate are the ways of predicting it and so on and so forth. And then there's a long section after that on social science. Social science has suffered from a lot of, a lot of problems. I can quickly summarize one of them with a little history. In Britain, there's something called the British Association, which is an association for all of science. Okay? When it started out, it had a half a dozen sections for the whole of science. And then early in the 20th century, people said, well, we need more sections, you know. Uh, and there was a lot of resistance to it. I mean, that was very interesting. Despite the, the huge breadth of interest of, of, of the organization, a lot of people objected to expanding the number of sections because it would weaken criticism. Once you get a lot of sections, each section become, becomes a bubble. They seem to be following the scientific rules, you know, publishing in peer-reviewed journals and so on. But in fact, the criticism becomes more and more limited. And that's happened in social science. In social science, American Psychological Association has 54 sections, 54 sections, just for psychology. Uh, the Sociological uh, Association has 53 sections, and there are yet more subdivisions outside of those organizations. So it's a really, really terrible situation for scientific criticism. It's very easy for a little group just to read one another's papers, share one another's biases, be friends, and so on, and sustain something which looks like science, but, uh, but really, really isn't. So, and then the last section is about history of science. <laughs> I don't want to give you a lecture on all of that. But history of science tragically has become very politicized. And many quite famous books are published by historians who literally don't really understand the subject. And that's, of course, a fatal flaw. You can't write about science unless you really understand the science that you're writing about. But I'm afraid there are a couple of authors who become quite famous for doing just that. Well, I'll stop talking and see if you have any questions. Well, you said quite a bit there, and I want to go back to the very first thing you said. Two things. Number one, you referred to science as a method more than once, but I often hear the term the science. The science says, and what's wrong with that? What's wrong with me saying the science says 
by 2075, the earth is going to be so warm? Well, you're right to be suspicious of that phraseology. And also, even though I wrote a book called Scientific Method, I don't really like the phrase because it isn't a method like an algorithm. There's a method for making wine. There's a method for making a box, you know, well-defined algorithmic steps. Science is not like that at all. Proper science is not like that. It's, it's more Darwinian. It's basically trial and error, right? If you're really clever, the trials that you make based on previous data and so on, they're well-conceived and then likely to succeed. But the bottom line is that all the great, essentially all the great discoveries of science were, were the end of a long period of failure. Many, many trials that didn't fail. And I think it's wrong to call something like that, something that depends on creativity, total freedom, open-mindedness. It's wrong to call it a method, but we have to live with it. That's, that's, that's what it has become. Now, the science. Well, here's another problem with science. It's what it provides is facts. The output of science is facts. The, I include theories, true theories is facts. Facts are, well, two metaphors that occur to me that the facts are like a map. They tell you the way the world is. They don't tell you what to do about it. They do not tell you what to do about it. A map is not a destination. Another example, a metaphor is toolbox. It's a, it gives you a load of things that you can put together in different ways to come up with the result, but they don't tell you the result. The box of tools doesn't tell you whether you're going to make a chair or a table. So, so and the th I mentioned a third thing, the science is rarely, rarely fixed. It's rarely fixed, particularly in the beginning of a new epidemic. Nobody knows, uh, to use the scientific term, nobody knows bugger all about what's happening, right? They don't know how infectious it is. They don't know how risky it is. They don't know how dangerous it is. That all takes time as the epidemic is evolving. So to expect wise judgments from the medical establishment early in an epidemic is simply a mistake. That's one problem. The other problem with the medical issue is scientists know a lot about a little. I mean, they have to specialize in order to advance. They are therefore not qualified to make decisions that involve more than their specialty. They should advise, but the politicians who, you might parody by saying they know a little about a lot, they certainly know, have to deal with a lot of different issues, and they have other advisors they can turn to beyond the medical establishment. So it's wrong, I think, for decision-making power to be given to medical people for the reason I just gave, and also because medicine is very hierarchical. I mean, I live on the edge of a medical center at Duke, and I can tell you it's very, very hierarchical. I mean, the first thing a medical person says, well, what's the protocol? You know, they're very nervous about making their own decision. Some more than others, you know, some are freer than others. But by and large, they look to authority to make, to make decisions, to guide them as to what they should do. So that, for all those reasons, I think having a medical person in charge, total charge, when they make a new, with a, a new disease is absolutely wrong. I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah, and it speaks to the next thing that you said in your summary, which is that you can't draw values from science. So in other words, if natural selection is true, and it might be better from an evolutionary standpoint, as you say in your book, to not have airbags, right? Because now you're encouraging reckless behavior. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have airbags. You can't draw a value from that. You may be able to draw an observation 
Well, why isn't our developing airbags also part of the evolutionary process? That's the way I would look at it is that, yes, everything we do is part of that process if, in fact, the evolutionary theory is true. Well, I think it's more likely true than many, many other theories. I think I would buy that. The issue there is can you derive values from evolution? And, of course, the, the first or the most notorious form of that was eugenics, right? We can certainly, I mean, human beings or mammals, they can certainly bred selectively like horses and dogs and so on. And we, are, we know, said the intelligentsia in the 1920s, we know what's good and bad. Now, that was also problematic. But they knew that someone who was mentally retarded or something should not have children because, after all, the genes must be bad and bad and bad. And bad. Well, that crashed and burned with the, the Nazis, of course, who thought they were applying eugenics. But they were not, by the way. They took a very narrow view of what consists, of what was good and what was bad, obviously. But it's a hideous, uh, a difficult, difficult situation. Anyway, uh, so that version of it has collapsed. But still, I think the most successful attempt to derive values from science is to say, well, everybody can accept that the level of the species is the highest good. And maybe everybody can. The problem is you can't predict. You cannot predict what will be the future in evolution. Karl Popper, a famous philosopher, said that. A lot of people agree with him. It's not so easy to predict. And if, if you take the easy, easy options, you, can't, you come up with policies that most people would regard as inhumane. And another example, I think I gave this also, if you took a Darwinian, I don't want to say Darwinian, because I like Darwin, he was a very humane guy. He never did speculate about the human <laughs> aspects of his work. But if you take this kind of natural selection view, then to whom should you give your first COVID vaccine? Well, the answer would be very simple, not to, uh, not to old people and sick people. They're the least fit. Let the disease dispose of them and let's move on. We'll give it to the unfit people. They're the ones who are actually going to contribute. Obviously, very few ethical people would agree, agree to that. And yet that's the sort of decision you would be driven to if you took this idea that values can be derived from evolution seriously. Now, where can values be derived? Well, that's a whole other issue. People of faith believe it can be derived from their religion. Secularists believe the values are obvious. That's wrong. Their values come from somewhere too. They just happen to be like John Stuart Mill and John Rawls and people like that rather than the Bible. But the, they have to be matters of faith no matter where you are. Now, I was thinking that one of the objections you might raise to that kind of thinking and making decisions or drawing values from evolutionary science I was thinking of Stephen Hawking. And I'm not exactly sure. I think he died of Lou Gehrig's disease, right? Yeah, he was he was in a wheelchair most of his life. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know if that's genetically derived or we don't know how that's derived, but let's just say it's genetically derived or somebody like him has a debilitating disease. His discoveries may advance the survival of the species quite a bit, but using Darwinian natural selection methodology, we might say, well, we shouldn't keep him alive. He's he's just going to die anyway. So it doesn't really work, right? I mean, he just can't, I don't know if we're not smart enough to draw the right values from science where it just can't be done. 
Well, I'll take the Stephen Hawking example. I mean, uh, I think there's a similar argument about Beethoven, who came from terrible family origins and so on. He wouldn't have been born. The point is, you, you make those decisions. If you're, if you're a hardcore geneticist, you make those decisions based on values. Where do those values come from? <laughs> so that's one problem. You're, you're already pulling out of the air some values. And the second thing is that you cannot predict, and that the Hawking is a perfect example you can't predict what's going to be uh what was what's 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 going to succeed in the, never mind the next year or two but the next hundred or thousand years you can't predict that <laughs> evolution that's intrinsically unpredictable and of course back to hawking again you've got to believe that learning about black holes is worth something i'll bet you there are a lot of people who don't how would we save some new comes up with black holes i don't agree with that you know nowadays the youth of the country country they don't like something, they don't want to hear it, right? So maybe there's some people who get really triggered by black holes, I don't know. So what's wrong with climate science? Is it a matter that people are not proceeding scientifically, or is there some fundamental flaw with it? Well, a distinction that I mentioned in the book, is not my distinction, uh, a guy called Alvin Weinberg came up with this. He identified a category of problems that he called trans-science, this was some years ago before uh, transgender became a thing. So what he's talking about is problems that could be that are scientific problems, but, but cannot, for one reason or another, be solved by the methods of science. You can't control all the variables or whatever. But I think climate science is like that. I'll give you just one example. People sometimes compare climate science to weather prediction, weather science. Well, weather prediction is pretty good, right? So why isn't climate science that good? Well, the reason weather prediction is good, it should be a quiz question, is it's tested every day. It's tested every day, okay? And so it's evolved to be pretty good. It can predict the weather two, three days in advance. Well, how about hurricane prediction? Well, you only get hurricanes half a dozen times a year or whatever. That's not so good, but it's okay. It's okay, not too bad. Well, climate science, how often do you test it? Answer, you never test it. You can't test it. You can't test the prediction 20, 30, 40 years in the future. Okay. You've got to you know, turn to other methods. Well, one method is this modeling. In, in, in the book, I talk about two or three ways to approach, well, two ways, really. Modeling is one where correlations are talked about. Another way. Model, uh, there are two kinds of models. They're what's called general climate, general circulation models, GCMs. And they try to model the whole bloody environment of the Earth, right? Every every cubic inch of air and water, put it all in one model, apply the laws of physics, and bingo, you've got an answer. Well, of course, you haven't, you haven't got an answer because you can't do that. You don't have access to the necessary information or computational power. So you've got a lot of these models with a lot of fudge factors. What about clouds or... Call clouds a factor alpha and just I'll pick alpha as 17.2 and it seems to work. Now, that's the sort of thing that goes into these, has to, it has to go into these models. And as a result, there are a great many models and they tend to die. And you can't even take an average. Averaging is one of the other big problems in science. In order for an average to be meaningful, you have to have some confidence that the average is going to be closer to the real value than things on the periphery. You don't know that about models. You don't know anything about that distribution. But anyway, they average. So climate models turn out to be very, very reliable. And they are getting a bad reputation. I think that CSO relies less on them now than they used to. 
There are also things called full physics models. I won't talk about those. They're much simpler. They apply to the atmospheres of the whole range of planets, all those planets which have atmospheres. You can apply these simple physics. They do, do pretty well. They don't give you particularly alarmist consequences. And the final method, which I think is where anybody can at least look at, is correlations. Is there a correlation between the level of carbon dioxide? So that's the supposed driver of climate change. Is there a correlation between the level of carbon dioxide and the temperature? Well, yes and no. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. There is a correlation if you look at the last 700,000 years. So when the temperature is high, CO2 is high. When temperature is low, CO2 is low. So it's really quite dramatic correlation. But there's one thing suspicious about that. I should, before I get to that, I should also add, if you look at a much longer period, over millions of years, now the data, how do you estimate the temperature you know, a million years ago and so on, there are all sorts of problems with proxies and so on. Nevertheless, if you look at the longer period, there's no Essentially, none of the carbon dioxide and temperature. Well, let's go back to the 700,000 years. Yes, there is a correlation, but if you look at it year by year or decade by decade, you find a funny thing. One funny thing is that often, maybe most often, the temperature rises and the CO2 rises 800 years later. Now, even the most creative scientists won't say that the cause follows the effect. Right? So it looks like the temperature is creating the carbon dioxide, which it is actually, because if you heat water that has a dissolved gas in it, some of the gas is expelled, because warm water holds less dissolved gas than cool water. So there's obviously, there is some effect there when there's also an effect the other way. I mean, it's also the case that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has some heating effect. So balancing these two, how do we know, and so on and so on. It's really not clear which is the major driver. Uh, if you read the commercial government sites, they will say, well, it's the CO2 driving the temperature is the big one. But on the other hand, there's a lot of data that it's the temperature driving the CO2. And it's the just variations in Earth's orbit and uh, solar solar. There, there are external sources of temperature change independent of anything on the planet. And these CO2 changes 
maybe or often are a byproduct of that and not the other way around. But it's a long story. But you, you see, do you, am I conveying the general argument? Yeah, you, you definitely are. And I have heard about the CO2 levels trailing the temperature changes before. And here's the problem, I think, that most, at least Americans, get their climate science information from politicians who supposedly get it from the scientists. But what the politicians say is always an order of magnitude more dire than what you find if you just go to the scientists that they cite, what they're actually saying. I'm curious, do they acknowledge this problem with the CO2 levels in a lot of cases lagging the temperature increases? And what do they say about it? Well, if you go to the government sites, they do acknowledge that there are two effects, that CO2 increases temperature, temperature increases CO2. But they say they believe that the first one is more important than the second, but there's no real demonstration of that. There's another problem here. It was one of the reasons that I, I got interested in this, actually. And that is the kind of emotional reaction that climate scientists have. Freeman Dyson's a wonderful uh, scientist at the Institute for Advanced Study Physicists, uh, expressed the same skepticism for the same reason, that there's so much resistance uh, and defensiveness on, part of climate, on the part of climate scientists. I mean, the contrast would be, it, suppose somebody in 100 years ago or 200 years ago came to you and said, well, I'm not convinced the Earth is round. Can you explain to me why it's, you think the Earth is round? I think most scientists have said, well, yeah, it's actually pretty simple. You, know, it's, you can measure it you know, by comparing with the horizon, you know, the very look at where the sun comes up, up and down, and so on and so on. So, you know, if they could present data, they wouldn't be defensive about it. Why? It's absolutely certain the Earth is round. I can give you the evidence. You can buy it or not. Climate science is not like that. When my friend and I uh, put together an initial paper on this, we sent it to uh, three scientists, two of them we thought would probably be sympathetic and they were. The third one was a colleague of mine in the environment school at Duke. And I knew him, I sat up to me, so he had perfectly amiable relations. And I just said, he said, what do you think? You know, He was not a happy bunny. <laughs> he basically sent, him, sent back a nasty email saying, you're not a climate scientist, stay in your lane. That's not a scientific attitude, it's an anti-scientific attitude. I was just shocked, you know. It's not the first shock I had, I had a few others. Faculty, science faculty have really done a 180 over the last 10 or 20 years that I was not quite prepared for being in retirement and working with work of older scientists. But anyway, that's the point. People are very, very defensive. And as a result, they have tended to monopolize the information channel that politicians use. I mean, they're like a little team, you know, where this is our team, no, you shouldn't listen to any other team and so on. In fact, there are groups that discuss, there's some excellent, there's something called the CO2 coalition that's on to uh, daily emails and circulates all sorts of stuff and so on. I think they're getting more input now. But for a long time, it was, it was a battle and the alarmists were winning. It's a funny progression that your book makes clearer with the elements of a religion and all that and your comments about trying to draw values because first you have something that's untestable other than through this modeling system that, again, it can't be verified. We can't go in a time machine in 150 years and say, yeah, this model is right. And then because there's adverse effects to people in the future, a value is drawn. 
and then it becomes a battle of good and evil rather than just a science. And now you're just so far removed. And I have to think that once you get to that psychological point as a scientist, there's no way you can be objective about interpreting the data and not biasing your results at that point. Not only is it true, but it's being the opposite that's happening. The opposite is happening. The two premier general science journals are Nature and Science, Nature British and Science American. And both of these journals become totally politicized. I mean, it's I'm just astonished to see, uh, I can't do it, do it now without wasting your time, but you can just look at the titles of the editorials. The uh, current editor of, of Science, not only that, he explicitly advocates that scientists take political action and use their science as a weapon in that. And on the one hand, of course, every citizen has a right to political action, but to encourage scientists to mix their science in with that is totally destructive. If, you, if you're looking at data and you're a social justice type, there are certain things you won't contemplate. For example, there's Charles Murray who's been vilified from every direction, but he's a very able and decent man. Uh, he's vilified for showing uh, endless data, data after data after data, that there are big IQ differences between blacks and whites. That's a hugely polarizing thing, but still, what does it mean? The blacks have complementary abilities, you know, example I gave somewhere is Dizzy Gillespie, did he have a high IQ? Who cares? He's a brilliant musician. There are, there are a lot of talent uh, that go well beyond, uh, beyond IQ. But yet those facts cannot be discussed. In fact, anybody who points out a difference of that sort, and I gave an example in the book, statistician at Duke who pointed out interesting differences between black and, and majority student, black, Asian, and white students, he was immediately vilified as a racist, just for presenting facts. I mean, these are just statistical averages and correlations. And that sort of thing is incredibly damaging particularly in the human sciences, which evoke emotion from practically everything. So the human sciences actually have essentially disintegrated in my view. I mean, social sciences, sociology have ceased to be anything but political noise in large measure. There are a few exceptions like Murray and a few others, but the exceptions are pushed firmly to the periphery by a political majority. I mean, it's just a fact. And you talk about the social sciences and this whole idea of trying to find the causes of certain effects might be impossible as far as the diversity of human action and the billions and billions of decisions that are being made all the time by all kinds of people. And I'm thinking back to Thomas Sowell's work about African-Americans, and it seems pretty clear from what he's presented, and no one really disputes him on the grounds that his information is wrong, that we had terrible laws on the books in the first half of the 20th century, especially in some parts of the country, but not exclusively, by the way, that were disabilities for African Americans. But all the economic outcomes, they were overcoming those, and by everything measurable, doing better and better and better decade after decade. And after those were removed, and in the last 60 years, a lot of those have either stopped advancing or turned around. So you can't draw the conclusion from that, that it was the discriminatory laws that are causing today's outcomes because they were doing better there. 
So assuming that most people that are in these social sciences are people of goodwill, what is driving them to reach these conclusions that just go completely against the data? Well, that's a great question. I really wish I knew, but what seems to have happened is that at a certain point, not too long ago, 10, 20 years ago, the propaganda that about the horrible history of the black race, African-American community was so bad that all that a lot of people could see was the evil of racism. That's all they could see. Uh, and the fact that other groups had been discriminated against and overcome it, obviously, for example, Jews, to some extent, Asians, none of that was relevant. Nobody paid any attention to that. They just said, well, look at the ter terrible history. And if you read the influential books that have been written about this, like uh, Ibram Kendi's book, on to be an anti-racist, and a couple of earlier ones, I think, stuff that Ta-Nehisi Coates has written, Robin DeAngelo's books, and so on. If you read all those, they always begin with this litany of horror. At, which is supposed to put the white reader into a state of, and quite successful sometimes, quite successfully puts the white reader into a state of guilt, where he or she then is just prepared to accept any, uh, any remedy, including some kind of reparations. And I, the argument Tom Sowell, who's wonderful and is hardly mentioned, by the way, in these other books, and yet he's the most uh, brilliant extant black scholar of economics, no question about that. So the guilt, I think, overcomes everything. And so we just have to help these people. Now, again, this is a, this wonderful example of trans science. How do you know what, whether these social practices have improved or disimproved and so on? But it, it seems to me that you're on the right track, that the more we've tried to help the white community has tried to help the black community, the worst the black community has gotten. And in fact, I think Jason Riley, who writes for the uh, Wall Street Journal, wrote a book called Please Don't Help Us or something like that. I think that's absolutely right. You don't, if you have a child who's, who's uh, having a hard time learning arithmetic, you don't help the child by doing the arithmetic. You get the child to do the arithmetic one way or another, okay? So in the same way, if a community is, is poor and crime-ridden or whatever, first you see if, if there are obvious legal impediments that ought to be removed. And I think that was done for many, many years, uh, ended mid-60s, right? But then they have to do it on their own. But if you read these, if you read these books, like the Angelo's book and stuff, the African-American community is treated like I was going to say like children, but worse than children, because everyone knows children can do things, you know, they have, they have agency, but the black community treats that they don't have agency. So the Angelos, which her book, I have to say, is extremely annoying. I tried not to keep, tried to keep the emotion out of it, but it is very, very annoying. But when she talks about an interaction between a, a white person and a black person, the black person is unhappy for some reason. All the, all the weight is on the white person to understand why the Never mind the white person has good intentions. That doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter. What the obligation for the white person is to understand the black person. There's no reverse obligation. There's no obligation for the black person to understand why this white person misunderstood the situation. That was it. It's totally asymmetrical. 
you can go through the whole book and you find example after example of exactly that, which is, it's obviously wrong. It's obviously wrong and not helpful, by the way, to the black people. It's not helpful to black people. And you've got people like Kendi saying, well, assimilation is wrong. We can't do assimilation. That's absolutely wrong. You know, so they, they, there's a consistent attack on just those things which might uh, mitigate some of the problems that these folks highlight. One last comment on all of that, it's that trying to think like a scientist, we've had many demographic groups of immigrants that were mistreated during the initial decades that they were here. No other demographic group was dragged here in chains. Okay, so you have to recognize that difference. But once slavery was abolished, you could probably put African-Americans in a category, something maybe like the Irish when they first got here. But I think even worse, I think they were treated obviously even worse, especially in the South. But no other demographic group was specifically targeted by the government for assistance. So we're going to help these people because of these terrible injustices. And Lyndon Johnson actually said after the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, he made a speech later in the year that he said, look, it's not good enough now after all this injustice that we're just going to put them at the starting line, fire the gun. I think this is the imagery he used, if I remember correctly, and say, go, you know, we're going to have to do more. But as much as that may be well-intentioned, maybe not by Johnson himself, but by people who had the same ideas, how many decades is it going to have to take before we just admit it's not working? And maybe if we just leave them alone for a generation, they do much better. That's doing just what Lyndon Johnson said we shouldn't do. Put them at the starting line, fire the gun. One generation later, I think this whole race thing is over. Well, you know, I absolutely agree. I mean, there are practical reasons for moral principles. And that that is, when you take something like Johnson's uh, idea of compensation, you really don't know where that's going to go. But you do know one thing, you're breaking, you're, you're, yes, you're breaking a moral principle. The moral principle is treating everybody the same, right? That's the moral principle. And in, in order to help this group, you're breaking that. And you don't, in fact, know the rightness of doing that. You can't assess the consequences and so on and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I think you, you, are, you are absolutely right, right, on, right on that. In, in a way, this situation reminds me a lot of the Cultural Revolution in China. You know, China was getting a little bit more capitalistic and so on, and Mao, Mao Zedong was, there and was not happy with that. So, in order to stop the thing getting off the rails from his point of view, he instituted the Cultural Revolution, took all the intellectuals, put them in farms, put the young people in the streets, let them beat up professors and all the rest of it. Doesn't seem like a bad idea now, though, does it? Anyway, <laughs> point is, it looks almost that way here. Now, here we are, disparities between blacks and whites are getting less, uh, racial strife has uh, gone down and so on. And there are all these people, you know, who have a stake in, in, in racial unrest. They saw this, I don't know, come do something about it. We can't have all this peace breaking out. <laughs> and so they started all these divisive moves, you know, these special laws. And I mean, hate, something like hate crime, right? That's an oxymoron, right? I mean, every crime, in a sense, is a, is a, hate, is a hate crime. And surely it would make a, a hate crime statute in, itself is unco- should be unconstitutional. We have equal protection under the law, correct? So, but if you 
if you murder a, a, a black lady, you're or injure a black lady, you're being more severely punished than if you injure a white lady, right? Because she's the protected class. I mean, it's completely crazy. And yet all of this is percolating into the legal system now without very much challenge to it. Well, you've got a lot of interesting roads you go down in your book. Is there a particular place? Is it Amazon or do you have a website where people can go get the book directly? Where would you prefer they buy it? Well, I mean, they can get it directly from Regnery, who are the publishers, but most people will go to Amazon. Whether they like Amazon or not, it's probably the easiest way to get it. And thank you for giving us a little publicity. I appreciate that. No, no, we'll definitely link to the book on the show notes page of this episode. And where do people find more of your writing or work? Well, you can Google me. I'm there. I've got various presentations and so on. And I published in Quillette, the um, local Martin Center for Education here. I published a lot of blogs there. But if you're interested in the scientific method book, that's all on Amazon. I have a book called Unlucky Strike. No time to talk about it now, but it gives the scientific facts and political and legal history surrounding smoking, a very controversial area. We hear a lot of bad stuff about smoking, which isn't true. So by all means, look for Unlucky Strike. There's a new edition of that. All right, we'll link to that as well. And John, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, it's fun to talk to you, John. Thank you very much. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget that if you haven't already, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. There's all kinds of additional content there, including my online courses, the first of which has already been uploaded and a lot more to come. So that's patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Also, if you haven't downloaded a free copy of my ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, then just go to itsthefedstupid.com and download a free copy for yourself. It's also available in paperback at that link. And finally, if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.